morning. It's a, it is a pleasure to share God's word with you today, as David said. Um, this morning we're going to be taking a little bit of a time warp, so I hope you've got your spacesuits on or time suits or whatever it is you need for travel through time. We've been studying in the book of Acts. Uh, we just finished up reading about the moment when God stepped down and woke Saul up, turned him around. Twenty years later is where we're looking at today, the book of 1 Corinthians. And we need to understand a little bit about the historical background of the Corinthian church. Uh, it's a little bit awkward jumping into chapter 15 of a book to preach um, But we know that uh, this letter was written from Ephesus during Paul's third missionary journey, so around the year uh, AD 55. And Kathleen, if you can throw that map up there, that'd be great. This map is hard to see, but you can see uh, over towards the right under the purple where it says Cilicia is Antioch, where uh, Paul began his journey. Uh, Circled in yellow as you follow that line to the left is uh, the city of Ephesus, where Paul was writing from. And he was on his way around that northern lobe of the Mediterranean Sea to Corinth. That's also circled in yellow there. So he's on his way to Corinth. But before he gets there, he finds the need to write a letter to them. Because that church was in trouble. And this isn't the first time that he wrote to them either. There's a letter that came before 1 Corinthians. So I guess that's like 0 Corinthians. But that letter has not survived. Uh, For whatever reason, the Lord uh, did not think that it was necessary for his church to have that as part of our scripture. But we know from uh, the mention that uh, Paul writes in there that this was a troubled church, that he has already written to them once before. And this is about four years after he founded the church. He founded the church in his second missionary journey in around the year 51 A.D., And so within four years, he found it necessary to write to them twice, letters of correction, and he's going to see them. Um, We know that Corinth was a large, uh, prosperous, but morally corrupt city. And because of that, there was kind of a fierce debate going on in the church there about what is the proper relation of a Christian in the world. So this was the first problem that Uh, that he addressed. And we're not going to dwell on that uh, much, but I want to give a good comprehensive introduction to Corinthians. There were basically three views. One of the views in that church was that the people of God should mix with the people around them to the point that there was no uh, distinguishing them by their behavior. And that is the issue that uh, we believe Paul was addressing in his first letter to them, because he says, warning Christians not to associate with a Christian who would Uh, adopt that perspective. The second perspective was uh, probably a backlash against that. Members of the church who found it necessary to withdraw from the world, to isolate from the world, to try to protect themselves from the world in order to preserve holiness. And then there was a middle ground that uh, Paul seemed to support, that, that Christians should feel free to associate with sinners, but always with the gospel in mind, and that we should live differently from those around us. The division between those three groups threatened to undo the church. And some members of the church grew self-righteously proud, considered themselves more mature, more spiritual, uh, more knowledgeable than their fellow believers. That was the first problem that Paul was writing to correct. The second problem, which is where we're going to focus our time today, 
was uh, that an excessive focus on spiritual matters had come into the church to the point of having a disparaging or a negative view of anything physical. This uh, belief was rooted in several philosophies that circulated in Greek and Roman culture at that time. Uh, the, the low view of scripture or of, of anything physical became so extreme that some of the Corinthian believers thought that anything physical was sinful. And so they came to doubt that people are resurrected at all, and specifically that that resurrection is physical. So that's uh, what we're going to be studying more, is, is uh, Paul's response to that erroneous belief that had crept in. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we are going to begin at verse 12. Kathleen, you can uh, turn that map off now. Thanks. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished." If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Let's pray. Lord God, we come again to your word to be changed by it. We come to see you for who you are. We come to learn more rightly how to worship you and why to worship you. God, I pray that you would speak powerfully as we study these things. I pray that your spirit would be present in this room, would bring to life the words that enter our ears and bring them to our hearts to convict us and uh, to bring us to change where we need to change, to, to worship you more fully and and purely. Amen. Well, in the class that I'm taking right now, where I'm doing a, a unit on word studies, where we look at of all of the possible meanings that an author could have had for a particular Greek word, what is the one specific one that he had in mind here? And so I thought, well, in this passage, this uh, idea of raised from the dead is pretty important. I'm going to do a word study on that. And I sat down, and an hour later, I found out that in the Greek, raised from the dead here is best translated as raised from the dead. 
Yeah. It's pretty obvious from the context here. I felt a little silly at that point uh, after spending time, but the essential truths of the Bible are so clear sometimes that a child can understand them. And perhaps even more surprisingly, a grown man with 10 inches thick of Bible study resources can also understand them. The resurrection is central to the gospel. If you look at verse uh, 1 of chapter 15, Paul introduces this concept by saying, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. So what's coming is going to be the gospel, one of the times when Paul summarizes it. And then in verse 3, he states what that was. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He says this is of first importance. This isn't second or third or something uh, inconsequential. This is of first importance. If the faith was a college major, this would be Christianity 101. This would be the first unit of that course. This would be the very first day of that course when the professor stands up there and says, our study is Christianity, and Christianity is, and then he would define it. This would be there of first importance. We see in those words that Christ died for our sins, and that means that we have sins. If there is no sin, there is no need for a Savior. If there is no Savior, there is no Christ. If there is no Christ, there is no Christianity. These things are crucial and essential. And the reason they are so essential is that the resurrection is proof that the atonement Christ has made is sufficient. Wrapped up in this is the dual nature of Christ, fully man and fully God. Jesus must have been fully man because if he was not, he would not have been a proper representative for the human race before God. He must have been fully God because only God could have borne up under the temptations that we all face, under the weaknesses that we all face, and yet not sin. So wrapped up in these ideas is this dual nature, fully man, fully God, in a way that is so hard for us to understand because our math is limited. But this works. It works in faith. When I die physically, if I am outside of Christ, I die spiritually as well. And that death is permanent. My physical death is not sufficient to pay the debt of the sin that I hold. So I die spiritually as well to pay for that sin. When Christ died physically, he had no sins of his own. His physical death paid the penalty for the sins of his followers. and Paid it in full. Unlike me... Because of his perfect obedience to God the Father, Jesus had righteousness to spare, even after paying the penalty for these sins. And because of that, death could not hold him. He had righteousness to spare. His physical resurrection from the dead demonstrates that he had righteousness left over after paying the sins of his people. We will look at verse 17. It says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile because his resurrection is the proof that sins have been paid for. 
Our faith is futile if the historical event that the faith is based on is not true. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then I have no confidence that my sins have been paid for. We also see that the resurrection is essential for hope. Look at verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. He's saying, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins, but it gets worse. If Christ has not been raised, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Intellectually, I can deal with the thought that one person, even me, could perish for sin, and life would still have some kind of meaning. But when I consider the thought that if Christ is not raised, every person who has passed has perished, that is overwhelmingly depressing. I can't deal with that thought. When I was in high school, uh, 15 or 16 years old, a friend of mine and I were hanging out at a park. And uh, you might think that high school boys only talk about food and girls, but occasionally high school boys will talk about uh, deeper matters as well. And I was sharing with my friend that day that if I ever became convinced that there is no God or that the truth of the Bible isn't true, that would be the last day I live. But I am convinced of these things. And because of that, I have hope. I don't believe that anyone should, in desperation, take their life because we have hope in these things. I'm alive to speak these words today because I am convinced that the gospel that Paul preached is true. There's a bit of a difficult concept embedded in here in verse 20 that we need to understand well to understand this passage, and that is the word first fruits. Verse 20 says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And by the way, that's clearly answering all of those if statements that Paul made before. If Christ hasn't been raised, then we're all futile and our faith is futile. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. These things are true. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So my family has recently been uh, planting new strawberry plants, and we are looking forward to a harvest of strawberries in the next month or two here. And in our family, we have a little bit of a tradition, and that is that nobody is allowed to pick a strawberry until there are at least four of them ripe. We'll need five now, but the deal is everybody gets one, right? One for each person. Nobody can pick those strawberries until there's enough ready. But that's not the way it worked for Jewish farmers. For Jewish farmers, they were required to bring that very first bucketful of strawberries to God. That was the first fruits, literally the first fruits of the harvest. It was a symbol of thankfulness for the harvest. But more than that, it was a symbol of confidence that the rest of the harvest would come and come in abundance. So Jesus' resurrection is the symbol and the assurance of the full harvest of his people. His physical death grants us spiritual life. His physical resurrection assures us that we also will experience physical life after death. And if that were not so, then we of all men are most to be pitied. 
We see that in verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. There's no reason to forego pleasure or endure hardship for the sake of the gospel if we have hope only in this life. Paul summarizes this idea as let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die if Christ has not been raised. But more than that, more than the, the, the pity that we would give to somebody who gave up pleasure for the sake of something that isn't true, we would have to pity a person who believes they are spiritually safe when they have no safety. For a person to feel spiritually safe when there is no safety is to suffer the cruelest of all deceptions. In uh, 2020, Ligonier Ministries, a well-known Christian ministry, did a a follow-up survey. Every two years, they've been doing a state of theology survey. And the most recent results are from 2020. One of the questions that they asked people, uh, they got this response from people who self-identify as evangelical Christians. 30% of self-identifying evangelical Christians agreed, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 30%. Amazing. With those odds, it is likely there's somebody joining with us today who may feel that way. Jesus was a great teacher, but is not God, and and that that's consistent with Christianity. We've already talked about how that dual nature of Christ is essential to these things, fully man and fully God. If you're one of those 30% who calls yourself a Christian, but does not believe that Jesus was God or was not raised from the dead, then what you believe is not Christianity. It may be relationally appealing. It it may allow you to uh, feel like you can get along with people more, to not take such a hard line as what the Bible takes on these things. It might be intellectually satisfying. It might be emotionally fulfilling, but what do you do with your guilt? If Christ has not been raised, if Christ is not God, then what do we do with our guilt? If your faith leaves out the resurrection of Christ, your faith is not Christian. And you are, of all people, most to be pitied, according to Paul's words here, to feel spiritual safety when you have none, to be hopeful when you have no hope. So if that is you, then I have a request that I would make to you Earnestly read the Bible. Read it not to try to prove some point, but to see who this God is who gave us these words. Ask him to show you who he is as you read these things, that you would know him. And if after searching out God's word, you stubbornly refuse to accept the truth that he presents over and over in it and clearly in it, then for the sake of your own intellectual consistency, don't call yourself Christian. These things are of first importance. The truth is that we do have hope in this life and in the one to come. I'm going to read a quotation here, and I want to see if you uh, can guess who wrote this. 
Religious suffering is, at one and the same time, the expression of real suffering and a protest against real suffering. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. The abolition of religion as the illusory happiness of the people is the demand for their real happiness. Karl Marx, 1843. He was wrong. He never tasted God in his fullness. He was wrong. But Paul writes that if Christ had not been raised, he would be right. If. That if is not true. It's clear from Paul's words there, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. It's clear that hope in this life and hope in the next life go hand in hand, and so we do have hope in this life and in the one to come. When Marx wrote those words in 1843, opium was not primarily a narcotic. It was a painkiller. It kind of dulled the senses instead of aspirin or Tylenol or ibuprofen, whatever we would have. And so he was saying that if Christ has not been raised, then the only good thing of religion is that it kind of numbs us to the pain of this world. But if there's no hope to come, then why is there hope here? But we do have hope because Christ has been raised. Church, Easter Sunday is not an occasion for you to sit quietly in your pews and observe a sermon. And so I ask that you would join your voices with mine, that you would participate in this sermon and let us together give testament to the hope that we have because Jesus Christ is risen. If you have lived these things of which I speak, then respond with me with these words, we have hope. Say them, we have hope. When we have a bad day at the office, or at home or at school, we have hope. Say it with me. We have hope. When people are unkind to us, we have hope. When we lose our jobs and we aren't sure how we're going to pay the bills or keep the lights on, we have hope. When our children are sick and nothing we do seems to help them, we have hope. When our own relatives treat us shamefully, we have hope. When our loved ones close their eyes for the last time, we have hope. When we stand before the judgment seat of God and he looks at us and says, what have you done to deserve eternal life? We'll say nothing. Nothing, Lord. I've done nothing to deserve eternal life. But Jesus, your Son, my Lord, my Savior, Jesus is my hope. He is risen! He is risen. Amen. Praise be to God, and may you be blessed. Let's take.